This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Well, hello there. Libby is planning to be back for Free For All Friday. So six weeks from tomorrow, we Ontarians go to the polls in the first provincial election in four years. Premier Doug Ford has been campaigning for re-election unofficially in recent weeks, making a total of $11 billion in new spending announcements since March 1st. And that's before the budget is announced and campaigning begins for real. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca has also been making some campaign-style announcements, and he joins us for a conversation on Fight Back today. Stephen, thank you for making the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back on. Talk to us about what you describe as major policy announcements made this morning and yesterday. So, no, for sure. Delighted to. I I, uh, was really happy to make, I'll start with yesterday's announcement. We have seen uh, here in the city of Toronto, but frankly in other parts of Ontario as well over the last number of months, that community safety is a top of mind concern for so many residents as we see heartbreaking stories of gun crimes being committed, people not just being injured, but tragically losing their lives to gun violence. That's why Ontario Liberals announced yesterday that if elected come June 2nd, uh, we will work with our federal and municipal partners to deliver a handgun ban in this province within one year of taking office. Uh, I'm really proud of that. You know, we saw just this past weekend, we saw five individual men coming out of evening prayers at a mosque in Scarborough. And all five of them randomly shot as they were literally just walking through the parking lot, uh, going about their uh, going about their business. This is unacceptable to me, and we've seen the numbers moving in the wrong direction. Uh, we've we've heard clearly from the Ford Conservatives they have no interest in moving in that direction. They've fought the federal government with respect to restricting uh, guns that can that can harm people, and so we're going to take decisive action in partnership with the other levels of government to deliver the handgun ban. Today, I, I went out to talk about the, the continuing racism, intolerance, uh, the hatred, the discrimination that we still have in the province of Ontario, and the Ontario Liberal plan to, 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 to fight each of these um, really grave concerns. So, for example, an Ontario Liberal government would, uh, would, would end streaming in our publicly funded schools in both grade 9 and grade 10. The Ford Conservatives have only confirmed that they would do it for grade 9. Uh, we also talked about uh, supporting financially and, and through other capacity-building measures, uh, supporting the hiring up of more police officers across this province who are from underrepresented and racialized communities. I think that's so important that people see themselves reflected in our police services. And I also want to talk really quickly about the ongoing training that we would provide for our police services with respect to de-escalation, anti-racism efforts, mental health and and so on. So those are just some of the ideas that we put out in the last couple of days that I'm really proud of what we've, we've, we've created. I want to talk to you more about today's announcement in a second, but just to backtrack on the handguns, sure. uh, where a lot of these crimes are happening with uh, smuggled illegal handguns. How does a handgun ban work to get rid of those particular weapons from uh, the criminals who you know are bringing them in illegally to begin with? 
Well, I think sometimes we allow ourselves, and I say this so respectfully, to fall into the trap of, of believing that every single gun crime in this province is committed only with what's known, as you put it, an, an illegal gun. There's a lot of there's a lot of talk out there. I, I was asked this question repeatedly by reporters yesterday. There's a couple of things to keep in mind. So by the government, the Ford Conservative government's own response to my announcement yesterday, they talked about how somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 percent of gun crimes and gun violence in Ontario are committed using illegal guns, not illegal, but legal guns. We saw a really heartbreaking story back, I think it was April the 12th, two individual men in the city of Toronto, a 21-year-old and a 35-year-old who were randomly killed uh, by an individual who, when police arrested him, they discovered that he had an arsenal of legal guns in his disposal, in his collection, if I can put it that way. So I want to be really clear about this for your audience. I'm not suggesting the handgun ban on its own will resolve the problem. I've never said that. But we we have a a willing federal partner right now in the federal government that has said clearly they'll work with provinces either by empowering them, by passing federal legislation, or by doing it directly through the federal legislative process to actually say who wants to deliver a province-by-province handgun ban. I think we do have to, 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 we, we do have to make investments so that we are stopping the inflow of illegal guns. I think we have to do it all. And what we've seen from the Ford Conservatives is just a refusal to go at the handguns that are legally owned uh, that are that are being used in the commission of crime. So I, I want to attack it all. But what's different right now is that we have a federal partner who's asking the provinces who is willing to lead. And as premier, we will lead here in Ontario on the handgun ban. You mentioned the Ford government uh, this morning in making one of his announcements. Doug Ford was asked about uh, your proposed handgun ban, and this was his response. I've been very clear on my stance. We've put $185 million in fighting uh, gangs and, and guns. That's what we need to do is continue to invest, support our place. Stephen Del Duca, what do you say to that? Yeah, well, Doug Ford's ignoring the reality of what's happening on the streets of Ontario right now, because in the last six to 12 months, despite his uh, his words, we're seeing that the stats are going the wrong way. There are people who are losing their lives. There are people who are being, inju- who are being injured to gun violence. And as a premier, I don't have a clue why you wouldn't want to bring forward every tool at your disposal to deal with this, unless you're focused on the, the narrow interest, the gun lobby, as I put it yesterday. I'm not. I'm focused on everyday Ontarians who deserve to be safe and healthy in their neighborhoods. That's why, yeah, we're going to fight the guns, the, the gangs. We're going to go against the illegal guns, too. But we will deliver a handgun ban because that's the best way to deal with the entire picture in a comprehensive fashion. Ontario's Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca is joining us here on Fight Back. Jane for Libby. I have to admit, Stephen, that when I was listening along to your major policy announcement yesterday, I thought in advance it would have something to do with long-term care, health care, the issues that have been very pressing for Ontario residents and residents around the world because of the pandemic. We had a conversation at this time yesterday with our strategy panelists, and they weighed in on your handgun proposal. Uh, we've done a little edit on this. It's conservative strategist John Capobianco, followed by a former colleague of yours, uh, the former Liberal Finance Minister Charles Souza, and Variety Village CEO Karen Stintz. Have a listen. There's a couple of 
you know, political touchy third rail issues, if you will, that the liberals will always throw at the conservatives, one being, you know, private health care or abortion and the other one being guns. So obviously they're trying to use this as a bit of a wedge issue. It is a wedge issue. To me, though, the real issue is still health care and education, right. the economy and the environment. Yeah, it sounds great. Ban guns. Let's do it. Who doesn't want to do that? What Doug Ford can't stand up and say, no, I don't want to ban guns because he'd look like a fool. But 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 it doesn't do anything to tackle the gun violence. So, Stephen, how pressing is this <laughs> this issue around a handgun ban for the well, people of Ontario? Well, just just let let's just be really clear about this. With the greatest respect to Karen, that's exactly what Doug Ford has done. Literally, she said Doug Ford can't stand up and say he won't ban guns, but that's literally what he has said all the way through. It's what he said two years ago when the federal government said they wanted to go in this direction on assault rifles. He said no then. He said no through the statements the government released yesterday. He said no again today. So Karen, respectfully, is wrong. Doug Ford refuses to ban handguns because he's he's playing to the gun lobby. I'm not. I'm concerned about people being safe and healthy in their community. When you when you come out of a mosque in, in the middle of the holy month of Ramadan in a, in a place like Scarborough, and you're just finishing your evening prayers and you're walking to your car innocently, and you're hit with a bullet, I mean... That, that's not acceptable. And to me, that's not acceptable in the province that I want to lead. So, you know, in addition, yeah, Charles is right. Healthcare and education, critically important things that we will be talking about. There are 42 days to go until the election actually takes place, as you pointed out in the introductory comments that you had. We're going to be talking about a lot of additional policy ideas. We didn't release the whole platform yesterday. We talked about community safety and delivering the handgun ban. Today was fighting racism. We will be talking about seniors' care, something that's really important to me personally, which you and I have talked about before. That's going to be coming soon, and the rest of the pieces will flow in the run-up to the election campaign. So Ontarians will have absolute clarity about how I will lead this province and how our team will lead the province if we earn their trust on June 7th. Okay, and on racism, how does Bill 67, which is described as an act to amend various acts with respect to racial equity, how does that differ or compare with the proposal you unveiled today? Well, look, I, you know, I, again, I'm really proud of what we've come up with today. When I, when I think about what's taking place in publicly funded schools, and I'm about to do something I don't normally do, I will acknowledge that the Ford government in their decision to end streaming in grade nine was moving in the right direction. Ontario liberals want to go a step further. We don't think it should stop only in grade nine. That's why we're calling for and will deliver on ending streaming in both grades nine and grade, grade nine and grade 10. Uh, talking about the hiring up of more diverse officers, police officers who can be on the front line, representing those communities that have been racialized or underrepresented for far too long on our police forces. But to me, as importantly, the ongoing support, resources and training support so that our police services can can understand how to de-escalate really tense situations, uh, anti-racism uh, uh, training and, and mental health training, which I think is so important because of some of the really really, um, again, tragic things that we've seen occur over the last couple of years. Um, I want to, I, as Premier, will appoint a minister who is solely responsible for the anti-racism directorate. That's something that four years ago, the Ford Conservatives decided to get rid of, a standalone responsibility for fighting racism at the cabinet table. We're going to reinstate that because I think you need to bring real focus and real attention to something that is as challenging and as reprehensible as racism. Places of worship that where, you know, far too many people in this province don't feel safe because of what we've seen over the last number of years, mosques, synagogues, churches, we're going to make an investment to make sure that those people who are worshiping are safe 
and protected while they're doing so. And these are just some of the examples of what we're going to be focused on as it relates to fighting racism in this province. Uh, You know, I have to say, I think it's an excellent proposal to get rid of streaming uh, through grade 10 because it gives students uh, from all socioeconomic backgrounds more of an even playing field before they have to decide where they're going for their professional, uh, their professional ambitions down the the road. Uh, What brought that to the forefront for you? Those, those same kind of principles? Uh, those those principles and the feedback that we heard through our platform development process, we call the Take the Mic, uh, over the last number of months, we've heard from thousands of, of women and men from across the province who have concerns about what they've seen happening as a result of streaming in their own household to their own family members. Uh, that, along with a, a really great guy named Steve Anderson, who stepped up to give our campaign team and me and our platform development process advice on diversity and inclusion, and, and the other outreach that we've done with a variety of communities who've been directly and negatively impacted by streaming. So we're going to end it all the way up to grade 10 while we build in additional supports in our publicly funded education system. And we definitely look forward to hearing your announcements about long-term care, health care, home care. Coming soon, I promise. Okay, because those are priority issues, especially for our Zoomer demographic. I know. A report came out last week from Ontario's financial watchdog saying that the province is on track to balance the budget. So the Ford PCs are on track to balance the budget by 23-24 and run a $7.1 billion surplus three years later. That sounds like some good fiscal management. Uh, Can you give us your reaction to that? Well, you know, first of all, I I will say, and I say this very respectfully of the financial accountability officer, uh, next Thursday, not tomorrow, but next Thursday, the provincial government will have a budget that they're going to deliver. I suspect it's going to be largely an election platform document for the Ford Conservatives because it's happening weeks later than it normally would, right, as the election campaign will formally begin. I want to see what Ontario's Auditor General has to say about the books after we see what's in that final budget, uh, before we know for sure what the fiscal picture really looks like. I, I don't I don't believe that, you know, even if there is good news uh, as it relates to the fiscal picture in the province, I, I don't think the credit belongs to the Ford Conservatives. And I don't mean that in a partisan way. What I mean is that what we have seen consistently throughout COVID is that the federal government has stepped in and provided the lion's share, like the vast majority of the investments that have kept, have kept Ontario's economy moving, uh, you know, all the way from, from all of the income support programs to support for small businesses and more funding for healthcare and education. And I think we've seen many examples over the past two or three years where Doug Ford has purposely, deliberately chosen to underspend while the feds have been paying most of the freight and now he wants us to believe that this is some kind of miracle that he's produced. I, I don't I don't look at it that way. Uh, I know he thinks he can fool the people of Ontario with the $11 billion in gimmicks that he's been announcing since March 1st. But I don't think the people of Ontario are going to be fooled. I think they're looking for leadership that is competent and responsible and has a real plan to help in long-term care and elder care, to deal with health care and education and to build an economy that works for all of us. And that's what Ontario Liberals will be focused on. Stephen, we promised to let you go, let you go by 1215. It's now 1217. Uh, and I do want to, <laughs> I, I know we'll have you back again before uh, the June sure. 2nd election, hopefully on multiple occasions. But for our considering voting uh, against the Doug Ford government, uh, but they don't know whether to go liberal or new Democrat, uh, what would you advise them? I mean, I know what you want them to do, but, <laughs> but but, you know, how, sure. why, why the Liberals, not the New Democrats? 
Well, I think, look, here, here's, here's my perspective on it, and I'll, I'll try to say this in the most nonpartisan or unbiased way possible. If you look at the team that we've assembled as a party, women and men from every walk of life with incredible expertise, dedication, and talent, combined with the experience that I have as a former senior cabinet minister, so our team and the plan that we, are, we have built that we will continue to release in the coming days and weeks, it is evident to me that we can start the job of rebuilding this province in critically important areas right on day one. We don't have to wait six months. There's no risk involved in, in embracing this plan that we put forward. We can deliver it responsibly and competently. And I think we know in Ontario, when you look at political history for what it's worth, that it is really only the Ontario Liberals that can truly stand up and defeat Conservatives, generally speaking, but in this case, the Ford Conservatives. So over the course of the next 42 days, we'll continue to highlight our plan, our ideas, our path forward that we're proposing to deliver for the people of Ontario. We're going to keep showcasing the team. And most importantly, we're just going to keep our sleeves rolled up and work as hard as we possibly can to earn people's trust, because I think that's the most important thing. Stephen Del Duca, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. You take care. We do have some listener reaction, uh, Zoomer radio listeners wanting to get in on uh, weighing in on what Stephen Del Duca has just said, whether he's made an impression on you as a voter. Uh, we also invited NDP leader Andrea Horvath to join the conversation. She is busy today, but NDP energy critic Peter Tabbins is with us, longtime MPP for Toronto Danforth and an occasional guest here on Fight Back. Peter, thanks for joining us. Jane, it's a pleasure to be invited. Thanks for having I know you were listening along to some of what Stephen Del Duca was saying there. Uh, your reaction uh, to his proposals, uh, be it the racism, propo- anti-racism proposals, the proposed handgun ban, what you're hearing from him so far? Well, I was not a fan of uh, Stephen Del Duca when he was a cabinet minister, and I'm not a fan of him as head of the Liberal Party. Uh, I'm aware that he's come out saying that there should be a ban on handguns in Ontario. And and I have to ask, where was he? Where was his party for the 15 years they were in power when we were seeing thousands of firearm discharges in in our cities? Uh, it just doesn't add up to me. I think that we had an experience with the Liberals. Uh, it was one that led to them being thrown out quite soundly in the last election. And I don't think that people are prepared to go back to them at this point. Peter, you have a bill in the works to crack down on smuggling of handguns in Ontario. Tell us about that. Uh, Jane, yes. People may uh, may be aware that we have a huge problem with guns being smuggled in from the United States. And uh, we've had ongoing concern about this. One of the things that was striking to me in the last year or two was that the government of Mexico uh, is facing the same problem. And they've done a pretty deep analysis, and they're now suing major gun manufacturers in the United States who they allege are facilitating, helping uh, that supply line of illegal guns from their factories through dodgy or sketchy arms dealers, uh, through people who are buying guns really just on the edge of legality in the United States and having them flow into Mexico. Um, when you look at the kinds of problems that have been assessed in the past by Canadian journalists, uh, we're looking at pretty much the same sort of supply line. And so we in the NDP had proposed that the provincial government uh, follow the lead of Mexico, assess the problem that we're facing with illegal guns 
well, frankly, legal handguns, that's the heart of the problem, uh, coming into Canada, and initiate legal action just as we did around uh, tobacco, uh, around the opioid crisis. Uh, we need to put pressure on arms companies that see a market that they can supply with illegal handguns. We need to put pressure on them so that they stop using us as a dumping ground and really putting people in this province at risk. Uh, Jane, you're well aware of some really terrible shootings we've had in this city. Um, we had one on the Danforth uh, in 2018, which was really traumatizing Horrific, for yeah. my community yeah. and resulted in deaths and, and lifelong injuries to people. Uh, we can act, and we were very surprised that the Ford Conservatives were not willing to come on board mm -hmm. and take action against this smuggling. Uh, I would have thought that they would be on board. I'd actually talked to a number of people, gun owners, right, actually rifle owners, uh, who said, why don't you do something about the smuggling of illegal guns? And when I talked to them about what we'd proposed, they said, yes, you know, that makes sense. There are a lot of responsible rifle owners. Uh, we're not interested in penalizing them, but this whole black market, for guns that lead to the kind of crimes that we've experienced, right. yeah, let's go after them. So I, I was quite shocked that conservatives were not supportive. Because that was the situation with that firearm, right, in the 2018 shootings on yeah. the Danforth? Yeah. Well, it, it was, I gather, stolen from a gun store in Saskatchewan. Right. Uh, but... Uh, when you look at Metro Toronto police statistics, I think it was in 2016, something like 70% of the guns that they seized, they called them crime handguns, uh, were ones that were illegally imported. So we know we've got a problem with the United States pumping out large numbers of handguns, uh, funneling them through channels to us and us having people shot and killed on the streets. Peter Tabbins, I want to get to our Zoomer radio listeners. The phone lines are jammed here, mostly with reaction to the idea of this handgun ban proposed by Stephen Del Duca and the Ontario Liberals. Tony and Keswick, go ahead. You're up first. Uh, yes, I, Mr. Del Duca, you know, he, uh, they had their shot at it. Now he's coming up with a bunch more. I'll do this or we'll do that. Or, you know, I, I am tired of this talk and whatnot. Uh, as far as, you know, the guns, you're going to punish the good people who own guns with the bad people who don't own guns. Uh, Reese was a good, her dad was, and I went to high school together. We're good friends. We still keep in touch. And when that happened, and, and you see how it happened, that's what, you know, and then they, they, they think or even try to cut back on police. You know, when I was a kid living in Toronto, little Italy, I, I had my share of people saying stuff, and the, the people that were, you know, kind of, if you want to call it raise animal, a WAP, what they were calling me, they end up being a good friend of mine later on, and my dad's too, you know? So it's like, until people get to know each other. Right. You know, all this stuff with racism, people just get to know each other. That actor, that famous actor said it too. You want to get rid of racism? Stop saying it, and just start seeing each other as people and human beings. Tony, and that's thank what I you. See. But I, thank I you. don't want him, you know, like, punishing the good with the bad, and then you're not going to get anywhere. That's, okay. So that's that. Let's go to Ron in Guelph. Ron, go ahead. Thank you, uh, Jane, for taking my call. I'd like to make it clear first that I am not a gun owner and I have never owned a gun. But um, Peter Tabbins was hit the nail on the head. You know what? The Liberals were in power for how many years? We've had uh, gun problems for how many years? And there was nothing ever said or done about it at that time. To me, um, 
Even Del Duca made a statement that, well, the conservatives, these are just election stunts. This whole thing with the uh, guns, it's a stunt to, to try and attract voters in the Toronto and any of the uh, 905 writings that, tr- that touch the Toronto border. People outside Toronto, northern Ontario, they don't need to hear any of this stuff. Um, it's, it's not going to be appealing to them. He's strictly trying to appeal to the people in the uh, in the Toronto area. Okay, I took that point as well. Ron, thanks for calling in. Let's go to Barclay in Hamilton. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm completely against the idea of a total gun ban. It's The problem is not the legal gun owners, as I am. Um, the problem is the criminals and the crime. Uh, I am absolutely appalled at the fact that nobody mentions legal gun owners are... Uh, we go through an RCMP check every day. As far as our RCMP legal gun license, we're checked every day. And if there's a crime reported on our license, of goodbye license, goodbye guns, right? And we're the most law-abiding citizens. And I can't believe that nobody's really putting it out there that the problem is the crime. And nobody's going after that. They're going after everybody is a wide blanket statement. But why do it's you need, Barkley, why do you, I'm just curious, why do you need a handgun? I'm a sports shooter. Okay. And all I do is shoot paper, literally. Okay. You know, all right. and I, I don't ever intend on hunting anything. I don't ever intend on killing anything. It's the point of, it's an enjoyment. You know, it's like golf. It's a hobby. You like shooting yeah. golf? That's great. Okay. Thank you very much. That's education for all of us. Peter, it sounds like um, some Ontario voters, or at least those who are calling, are kind of in sync with your way of thinking. Well, I, I, I'm glad to hear that, Jane. And I, and I also just want to say that, you know, after 15 years of being in power and not doing anything about this problem, coming out now, well, really, you got to have a lot of questions about that. But I, I also want to say, and this is a, something that some of your callers may well agree with, um, you, there is no magic solution to this problem. Um, there are a whole range of things I think you need to do about making sure that you, you address poverty, that you give uh, young people who are at risk of getting into uh, criminal life, giving them job opportunities and life opportunities uh, so that they don't get caught up in that, dealing with poverty, racism, making sure there are opportunities. You need a broad range of things to be done in order to actually take on this problem. And I don't see the Liberals doing that. Uh, and I also see them doing it, well, saying they're going to do it after 15 years of, frankly, doing very little at all. Peter, I asked this of Stephen Del Duca as well, uh, the New Democrats under Andrea Horvath, and you are among uh, her main MPPs uh, and critics for the current PC government. Would it be fair to see that we'll be seeing big announcements coming on long-term care, home care, health care in general? Um, well, the rest of our platform is going to be announced, uh, I know, in the next little while. But I should note that we've already come out with a position on long-term care. Uh, we want to change it. We want to bring it back into public hands because we saw through the pandemic uh, the rates of death in privately operated uh, long-term care were much higher than in public or nonprofit. We just don't want to do that to our seniors. They deserve to have safety and to live as long and comfortable a life as possible. So on long-term care, we've already said bring it back into public hands and change the the model so that we have 
fairly small homes uh, so that everyone is known personally by everyone else. Uh, put the money in so that we have the, the highly skilled and motivated staff uh, to look after our seniors. And frankly, the other thing that's important, I think, to a lot of seniors, because I talk to them in my writing, is they want to stay in their own homes as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Let's put the money into home care so that you go into long-term care really um, when you just can't make living at home viable anymore. But people want to stay in their homes as long as they can. No, they absolutely do. And that is what well, we've heard from CARP members as well, the Zoomers Advocacy Group. People yeah. want to stay home and they want their homes to be accommodated in a way that they can stay home and, yeah. get, and get the help to come into their home that, that, that they need. I would think overall that is going to be more cost effective anyway. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And frankly, even if it just costs the same, let people live better lives. Right. Just let them live better lives. They, they've done a lot. They've built the society. They've raised the next generation. They deserve respect and dignity and, and a decent life when they're in their senior years. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Peter. I look forward to next time. Thanks very much, Jane. Take care. Bye-bye. NDP Energy critic Peter Tabbins, longtime MPP for Toronto Danforth. It's Jane for Libby. We need to take a little bit of a break here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, pay some bills. And then after the break, your questions for Dr. Peter Uni. Let me remind you of the numbers, 416-360-0740 or toll-free 866 Your questions for Dr. Peter Uni and the latest developments on COVID in Ontario next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. With recent COVID modeling suggesting that the number of Ontarians hospitalized with COVID-19 could surpass 3,000 by mid-May in the most likely scenario. A new Leger poll indicates a quarter of Canadians have been infected with the virus at some point during the pandemic. And amid this, there is a new Moderna booster in the works. I'm joined now by Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID Advisory Table, to discuss these topics and answer your questions. Dr. Uni, always a pleasure. Hi, hi. Let me uh, remind our listeners about the phone numbers, 416-360-0740. They love how accessible you are. And toll-free, 1-866-744-740. Where are we at with COVID hospitalizations and ICU cases on this April 20th? Well, we, we of course, go up to a certain extent, but uh, luckily not that rapidly. So I would hope, actually, we're just referring to our projections. We have a, a green, a yellow, and a red line that we actually follow more the green line, which would be excellent news. Right now, what we're seeing basically is uh, just baked in uh, the cases probably have peaked. Um, we see that in wastewater, but we also see it now uh, in a test positivity among healthcare workers. We start to come down a bit, means we continue to uh, go up during the next uh, perhaps 10 days or so still. End of, the May, uh, end of the month, we might actually have reached the peak for uh, hospital occupancy, perhaps a few days later for ICU occupancy. 
And I would hope that the peak will be below 2,500 in the wards. And um, we will see how where, it, where it will be with the ICU. But again, I don't think that we will follow the yellow line on our uh, projection, which would be roughly 500 patients peak uh, in ICU. It's probably considerably lower than that, which would be good news. It also depends on us, of course. So the modeling has changed even from a few days ago then? No, not necessarily. It's okay. just we had three scenarios. You know, the, uh, the, the best bet, low estimate of transmission, uh, that's the one that probably could apply, especially for ICU. Perhaps we will be somewhere between the, the, uh, the, the low estimate of transmission and the mid-estimate of transmission for uh, hospital occupancy. Not quite clear yet. We will see that probably a lot clearer in about four or five days. Uh, when we just have a little bit more data on hospital occupancy accumulated. It was this day last week that you um, were uh, speculating, uh, based on science, that that, uh, we had hit the peak of around 100,000 cases a day based on wastewater surveillance. Are we still at around 100,000? I'm just awaiting the new wastewater data coming in. Remember the long weekend, in addition, we had a snowstorm or snowstorms in the north, meaning everything is a bit delayed. Um, it seems as if we've reached a peak. Everything points towards that. I'm, I'm actually positive about this part. And uh, when you just uh, triangulate everything, what we know from the models, from wastewater, etc., then this peak will will be at around 100,000 infections per day indeed. Okay, yeah. so it's plateauing at about 100,000 a day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we don't know yet. I hope we start to come down. Right. Uh, stay tuned. In the afternoon, we might have new wastewater data. And again, I would like to have two, three uh, days more uh, more data, and then we'll see how it goes. Okay, fair. Um, you said this, it depends on us uh, as to where we get with hospitalizations and ICU cases during the sixth wave. You're talking about boosters, third and fourth shots, and masking, right? And about the Easter break, of course, the yeah. holidays, yes. But that has come and gone. So uh, <laughs> there's, I mean, in terms of uh, what we can do going forward. Absolutely. I just uh, continue to uh, to stay a bit careful, mask, avoid crowded indoor spaces. I think that's the most important part. And then, uh, yeah, uh, just if you haven't had your third dose, there are still people, you know, in their 60s and 70s and 80s who haven't had their third dose. By all means, get it. It uh, offers considerably more protection. And now, you know, in, in uh, higher age groups, it makes sense. If, if not now, then when, you know, to get a fourth dose, if you're more than roughly three to four months after the third. I was intrigued by uh, Mayor John Tory's comments this morning. As you know, he contracted COVID and um, he's just finishing up his isolation. But he said he did have acute symptoms for about a day and a half. But he figured because he is triple vaxxed uh, that the symptoms were far less than they would have been otherwise. And he said he's happy to use himself as a commercial so that people will get their booster (laughs) shots. (laughs) Oh, look, absolutely. It's First of all, uh, it's very variable, no. But a lot of people out there may not may not even actually understand that they've had COVID. You know, I, I think I talked about him. Our eight year old, he tested positive and was completely asymptomatic. No, um, we just uh, we just detected it because we did rapid tests. 
friends um, because we wanted to meet with friends. So there will be a lot of people out there who don't have anything or very little. Others like like uh, Major John Tory, you know, a little bit, but not that much. But I also have, you know, just uh, uh, one of my uh, close colleagues, for example, right now, the entire family knocked out and the parents actually are not that, uh, not, not that good. And they, of course, it, it's just like a severe call, mm-hmm. but still actually quite challenging. So it's all over the place. And a lot of people probably won't even notice that much anymore. Why do you think, Dr. Uni, that the uptake on third shots on boosters has not been the same as the first and second uh, vaccinations? I don't know. Um, It's difficult for me to tell, to be honest with you. I think in younger age groups, the intuition is that I can can understand that, you know, if you're in your 30s, um, actually we're protected well with two doses, which to a certain extent is true because they started with a very low risk to end up in the hospital or a relatively low risk, not very, but relatively low risk to end up in the hospital in the first place. And uh, a lot of people, you know, were socially active or uh, had to work in specific scenarios, also got Omicron. All of that contributed, you know, if if people had an Omicron infection, then perhaps three, four months ago, they would uh, would say, OK, I wait and uh, it may not be necessary. And this certainly contributes. Remember, we've had a lot of infections since beginning of December. Then there's this other part. It was more challenging. I heard sometimes for people, you know, in older age groups, especially if they were a bit frail to get this uh, fourth dose and the and the, the third dose as well. All of that could contribute as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that you struggle with accessibility and I would hope, you know, that people would be able now to go to a pharmacy and get the third or the fourth dose, uh, you know, despite limitations just by, by uh, getting help. As expected, our Zoomer radio listeners would like to speak with you, Dr. Uni. Numbers to call 416-360-0740, We'll start with Luigi in Toronto. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. You're- Hi. Uh, um, I'd like to preempt this. Uh, very briefly, um, I've been a straight Moderna receiver. Uh, shot one in June and then uh, one in July. Uh, shot number three was in October. Shot number four of Moderna, again, all of them, um, was just recently, well, February 2nd. Now, I'm auto-com- <coughs> I'm auto-compromised. Okay. Both are, le- are pulmonary conditions. And my question is, I think I would like to, especially when the, uh, uh, when uh, Dr. Uni said that uh, that uh, Moderna is, is developing uh, a better one, uh, that piqued my curiosity. My question is, given the uh, uh, there seems to be a difference. Uh, some people are saying it's been better to get it five months after, six months after. Mm-hmm. Some are saying three months after, and also some are suggesting saying. Uh, that if you're getting Moderna, uh, as I have, maybe it's good to get a Pfizer or something like that, whereas I tend to stick with uh, okay. Moderna. Okay, I will let you so go, what Luigi. Would he recommend, uh, yeah. When would he recommend I take my dose number five? Okay, actually, I'll keep you on the line in case you have a follow-up question. Uh, dose number five for uh, immunocompromised Luigi here, Dr. Uni. Yeah, so remember, I can't give personal uh, medical advice, but I can talk about your situation also a bit in more general terms. So first of all, diversification with vaccines is certainly a good idea. 
But uh, also remember that Moderna, therefore, it's a bit paradox what we've seen happening here uh, with the people just thinking Pfizer is better. Moderna, if anything, provides a little bit better protection. And this is then directly relate, related also then what we saw, see in uh, younger people below the age of 30 as uh, a negative aspect of the better protection uh, in older age groups. The younger then have a little bit uh, a higher risk of a myocarditis. No? So that's the first part. Then the second, so diversify, but if you want to stick with Moderna, it's all good. Don't worry. They're in many respects still comparable. Then the second one, the six months between two vaccine doses, once you have had your primary series of three doses, done. Um, the, the six months would be an optimal time window uh, if you think about this theoretically and based on lab research. But if it's five or four, you know, it's not that such a big deal for you. You will wait anyway until mm -hmm. the next wave is coming and hopefully this will only be late autumn. No? And, and doctor, tell us about this new Moderna booster that's yes. in the works for the fall. It's supposed to be more tailored to Omicron and Omicron exactly. siblings. But what if it morphs again, the virus? So, so first of all, you know, both Pfizer and Moderna, um, as far as I understand, are working on what we call a bivalent um, uh, vaccine. This is uh, comparable to what is being done with, uh, with uh, flu as well, that you basically introduce a code into the body that it allows the body to not only produce the original virus uh, uh, spike protein, but also parts of Omicron so that we're protected actually again, you know, with a boost against the original virus, but also against uh, against Omicron because our body then for a moment after the vaccine expresses just surface against spike protein also of Omicron. And that would be the idea that this combination would then just result in a bit of a better protection. And this would be something where we could expect results probably uh, come in from trials in the summer. Uh, so that we would hopefully be ready in late autumn if we need again, you know, a mass vaccination rollout then with an update. Okay, excellent. Uh, we have Dr. Uni, Dr. Peter Uni, until the top of the hour. We need to take a quick break. And I will get to your phone calls, I promise, in just a couple of minutes. 416-360-0740-1866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Dr. Peter Uni is joining us till one o'clock. He is the scientific director of Ontario's COVID advisory table. But you know that already. He has become a household face and name during the pandemic. And we are most grateful for all of his guidance, advice and reassurance. Dr. Uni, let's go to Jim in Pickering. Jim, go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. And first of all, thank you for taking this call. I, uh, I'm 75 years of age and uh, no restrictions, very good health. I've had three vaccinations. All three were Pfizer. So the first booster was done on December 2nd. And I have this done. I uh, book it and have it done through Durham Department of Health. It's a major, a major clinic. When I, when I was uh, making the appointment for the fourth, uh, dose, uh, the difference this time, uh, they mentioned that they said, well, 
they're recommending Moderna this time. And like I said, I've had three Pfizer already, and they've never recommended any type of vaccine before. And they've said, would that be okay? And I just thought, well, why are they asking me? But anyway, I said, well, I've had three Pfizer. And they said, well, we'll mark that down, but they may have a discussion with you when you go should I worry about this or be concerned or oh, why glad, would they change? You know, I'm glad you brought that to our attention, Dr. Uni. Yes. So, uh, no, it's actually perfect sense, the recommendation they make. So, first of all, you had Pfizer and to diversify means that you perhaps get a little bit of a broader immune response, which makes sense in any case. But there's this additional aspect. It's probably mainly a dose problem that no, for a full dose of Moderna, go for the full dose. And um, that the, uh, if you can get it, that the, in the, the boost that the immune system gets is a bit better than for Pfizer. It's what we actually discussed just before, you know, the split, uh, the, 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 the the flip side of that is that for young people, meaning people below the age of 30, especially if they're males, there's a little bit of an increased risk of myocarditis, but not for your age group or for my age group. Mm-hmm. So you or I, we benefit a little bit more perhaps from Moderna. That's absolutely true. And therefore, it was the right recommendation. But if you get Pfizer instead, that's fine too. Don't okay. worry. Okay, Jim? Thank you very much for that. Uh, well, that's what I was going to ask as well, because my husband and I, we both had a third shot of Pfizer, and he's just gotten his fourth shot because he's in the 60 plus, just just into the 60 plus. Uh, and he also got Pfizer for his fourth shot, but he should feel just Absolutely as good. Absolutely okay. Yeah. Okay. John in Pickering. Hello, you're on Zoomer Radio. Go ahead. Hi, thank you. I um, My call is very similar to Jim's. Uh, a little bit different in that um, I'm wondering, when I went to the clinic, they told me that Moderna was good, uh, effective for eight to 10 months, Pfizer four to six months, and Moderna was more effective, which is what I just heard. Now, with the, uh, with the Moderna, uh, Moderna uh, vaccine coming out again in the fall, will I still be able to get it in the fall, or, or will I have to wait till after eight to 10 months? Okay. No, no. So, so the point here is you can't actually give the time frames as, as you were told. That wouldn't be quite correct. It depends on what we're talking about. Protection against what? That's one of the issues. Um, and, uh, and the other one, it depends on the, on the doses you got. So what we know already is that the immune protection is just much better and the immune system responds in a much more mature way after the third dose then after the second dose. Therefore, I frequently talk about, you know, the primary vaccine series nowadays is three doses, not two. The fourth dose will then just bring you back after a few months roughly to the protection you had uh, after the third dose, which is excellent protection. And uh, it's basically just the first real booster. And uh, don't worry about the rest. You know, once you're six months down the line after the fourth dose, once we're in autumn, I hope we have a honeymoon phase during the summer and things will be really calm. Uh, in autumn, the, the, the race starts from scratch again. And uh, at least certain age groups and people with risk factors will probably need a true booster then in autumn again. But late autumn, most likely. Okay, John? Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for calling. Uh, We have a little bit more time here if you want to grab a line. 416-360-0740-1866-740-4740. I wanted to get your reaction as well, Dr. Uni, to the Leger poll that came out yesterday. 
uh, mm-hmm. which suggests 30% of respondents between 18 and 34 had been infected with COVID, while just 12% of those 55 and older had contracted the disease, not because people who are 55 plus have stronger immune systems, but because they tend to be out socializing less than the younger adults. Yeah, so uh, two things. Uh, with high certainty, at least for Ontario, this is an underestimate. You know, the, the, right now, when we look at our modeling, um, how much uh, infection would need to be out there to have the protection at the population level that you're actually seeing, when we look at wastewater, um, then the true number will be probably more right now around 40 to 50 percent of the population who was infected. We need in, to be aware of that. So that's an underestimate. Okay. Then, then uh, there may be, well, uh, a difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated. That's also something the poll yes. came up and between younger and older age groups. And of course, the first thing uh, people might t- tend to think of is they socialize more. And that's certainly true, too. But there's also the other aspect, which we saw, especially in previous waves, uh, they also work more in uh, in settings that are exposed. So the combination of that means that uh, probably, you know, if you're a bit in an older age group, you tend to have a little bit more possibilities to protect yourself uh, professionally when you with your work, during your work. But uh, you might also socialize a bit less until the wave has subsided. Right. So you might have had more people between 18 and 34 getting the virus because they were working in congregate settings back at the beginning of the pandemic. For, for when example. We, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's this other part, what I said before, a lot of people out there will have had atypical symptoms or, or very few symptoms at all and just think, oh, I have a little bit of a sniffle whatever, but it probably was COVID. But that so was COVID, therefore, yeah. the numbers, true numbers are much higher than what was seen in this poll. I'm pretty right. sure about that. Right. So these people who were questioned likely had symptoms of some sort and then were tested, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how they approach it in the poll. I didn't look at the methodology. I just heard right. the results. Okay, let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Daryl, you have a question for Dr. Uni? Yes, I do, Dr. Uni. Um, I got my fourth Pfizer shot on April the 8th, and then uh, I went out on April the 9th and obviously got exposed to COVID, and by uh, a couple of days later, spent that three really miserable days with it, which I'm still recovering from. And my question is, is the efficacy of the fourth shot in compromise by my encountering COVID shortly after getting it? Oh, great question. No, not at all. Not at all. You are just a bit unlucky or uh, unfortunate uh, that oh, yeah. you that you uh, contracted it there, but no, it won't be uh, compromised. You know, you will you will now have just uh, uh, combined immunity from the infection and from the vaccine, and this just uh, plays into each other's hands. Don't worry. And h- how long should I expect that to be in effect? The extra, you know, after encountering COVID, the immunity from that. Oh, if we're talking about uh, protection against serious outcomes, that's long-term protection, you know, uh, six months, nine months, 12 months, who knows? We don't know that yet, but longer. If it comes to infection, I would currently just think about three months. We know, but the point is this coincides now, three months from now, this wave will be just uh, inexistent. We will hopefully have really low numbers of infections. We will socialize a lot outdoors and this all helps. So uh, I think you're really well underway uh, until autumn, late autumn, when things start again, potentially, or probably. 
Thank you, Daryl. Thank you. Let's go to Irene in Etobicoke. Irene, you are on Zoomer Radio. Thank you. I have an, a question for Dr. Uni. Yes. When I had my first three shots, somebody from the government called me, or not called me, they came, they contacted me through the internet, and they told me where I was going to go for my shot and what time I was to be there. And what I'm wondering is, is that going to happen the fourth time, or am I responsible for making my own appointment? I would believe that you will be responsible for your own appointment. But this is actually a really good point that you bring up. You know, this, there's some data out there. I haven't looked whether there's more now that actually just indicates that we would probably do well if we really gave people appointments that they're able to cancel uh, or, or, or not, rather than have people organize their appointments. Mm-hmm. Right now, there are a lot of pharmacies where you probably just can walk in. Even I suppose I could. I mean, I was, uh, I was waiting because they said you have to wait a certain length of time. And uh, it's been five months since I had... Oh, just by all means, get waxed. If you're, if you're in an age group, you know, above 70 for sure, but perhaps even if you're a bit lower than that, um, if, if you can get it. Uh, three months after the third dose and you know since we're still in the middle of this wave your risk of getting infected is now much higher than uh, you know a month or two later so the best bet is uh, be very careful that you don't you know end up being just exposed while you get vaccinated but uh, if you go to a pharmacy that is not busy wear a mask etc just get the fourth shot well i know that when i went on the internet i i got a a telephone number that i could call and make my own appointment yes but i have i'm in walking distance of three pharmacies here in my area bring bring your uh, documentation you know with the vaccine doses you had with you and uh, your uh, identification, the health card, and uh, in many of the pharmacies, you can just walk in. Nice. I can't tell you whether this is happening where you are, of course, but it's worth just quickly phone call. You can they give it a try. Just come in. Okay, Irene, thank you. I think, Dr. Uni, we have one minute left. Well, I know we have one minute left. I think we can get in one more call. Jill in Mount Hope. Hi there. Um, I just have a quick question. My husband and I are both in our 70s. We are due for our fourth booster, which I have booked but we are also just over COVID. So I'm wondering, should we still go ahead with our booster next week or should we postpone it for a while? Yeah, with so many people, with so many people having gotten COVID, that is a good question. Yes, I would wait roughly two months, perhaps three months after COVID. And then get your next, your final shot. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Uni, that's all the time for today. Very helpful as always. And thank you so much. You're very welcome. Have a good afternoon. You too. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID Advisory Table. Jane, for Libby, one more day tomorrow. I will look forward to speaking with you then. In the meantime, enjoy this sunny day and listen to Bob Comsick. He's got the latest news next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.